We're glad you're with us on this Father's Day. Um, so uh, just first and foremost, happy Father's Day to all you, you dads. We love you. We honor you. Um, and we're thankful for the very crucial role you play in our world and in the church and in our lives. So uh, we love you. Also, as you can see, um, VBS decorations are already going up. And we're excited to start VBS tomorrow morning. And so a little bit later also going on is our, um, our SALT middle school students are um, starting their mission week tonight. And so they're taking over the city. They're going to serve the city they live in. And uh, we're so thankful for them. And we're going to be commissioning both the SALT middle school mission team and our VBS volunteers later on in the service. So uh, we're in week three of this series called uh, The Parables of Jesus. And so in this series, we've been uh, taking a look at um, the parables of Jesus found in the Gospels. And, uh, and as you probably know, Jesus' primary method for, for teaching um, was to tell stories called parables. And uh, they were simple stories uh, that illustrated a profound spiritual lesson, right? Simple stories that illustrated a profound truth that on the surface, if, we just, if, if Jesus were to just tell Speak the truth, the profound spiritual lesson, it might just go over our, our heads and our tiny brains, wouldn't be able to contain it. So therefore, Jesus obviously broke it down in, into a relatable form, and he used things, familiar things, relatable things that people, the listener could get, right? So they, cause they, could, so they could actually get it. I mean, what, what point is a message if we don't get it, right? What point is a sermon? What point... You know, is all of this unless we get it, unless we take something with us, right? Uh, so that's uh, Jesus set the template for 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 us as as preachers and for us as believers to go out into this world and and share the gospel in a way that people can can relate to and understand. Not not watering it down, all right. Let's, let's be be clear. But the simple message of the gospel, right? We complicate this this a lot, right? We, the church, in Christianity has complicated the gospel for centuries and centuries and made it and put all these add-ons to it. And uh, I'd just like to strip that back, right, this morning and, and strip away all the, all the unnecessary stuff and get to the good news of the gospel. So this morning we're taking a look at a really sort of a hefty uh, parable, um, and it's the parable of the ten virgins or sometimes known as the parable of ten bridesmaids, okay, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. This is an interesting parable. It can often be confusing to the listener, but I believe it drives home one of the most important and fundamental and foundational Christian beliefs that we have. And it's this, the doctrine of the second coming or the return of Christ, right? So, of course, we need to establish a baseline for understanding this morning in order to get the most out of this particular parable. We can't just go to Matthew 25 where the parable resides. And so you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 25 if you want. Um, we can't just start there, right? Or else we'd be proof texting like, we, you know, like Shannon was preaching on a few months ago about picking things out of the Bible just to make it fit our lives. And then, oh, that's, that's what it means. When there's a broader context, right? If you don't read before and after... Maybe even several chapters before and after, you're really not getting the entire picture. You can pluck a thing out of the Bible and make it fit your political ideology, but woe be unto you 
All I got to say, you can pluck a verse out and make it fit your life and say, this is what it means for me. Woe be unto you. Like, that's not, that's not correct. That's not, that's not what I ought to be doing. And I've done it. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. In, in, my, in my early formative years of preaching at 16 and 17, and God bless the church that called me to come and give a sermon at 17. I have no idea if they, I said anything of worth. But man, I, you know, in my, in my, in my uh, immaturity, in my zeal, I would prove text all day long. And take a verse, oh, I think that's what it means, so I'll just use it that way. No, we, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to show us what it means, first and foremost, right? But we also need context. I know you didn't ask for a, a lesson in Bible reading and interpretation, but there it is. But it's really crucial in where we're going, right? So the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus, we don't talk about it much, and I'm not sure why. It is the one great event left on the historical calendar that we look forward to. Amen? It's the one thing left in our faith that has yet to happen that we are eagerly awaiting. We celebrate Christmas like it's nobody's business. We celebrate Easter, the empty tomb, and we ought to. Without the empty tomb, we are nothing. We have nothing. But man, is the second coming of Jesus worth waiting for or what? Is it not, does it not excite you? Do you not have a sense of anticipation? Or do you have a sense of fear? Confusion. If you, are, if you fear the return of Jesus, you don't quite understand it. There's no doubt. I, 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 can, I, I can say that unequivocally. It is what it is. If we as believers, if we put our trust in Christ... We have nothing to fear in the second coming of Jesus. In fact, we are waiting. My wife says all the time, I just want Jesus to come back. <laughs> she, we, we take a look at our world and the things around us, and, you know, she deals with school-age children, and, and, and you know, some of these children are, are, are lacking. Let's just put it, majorly lacking in the parenting department, and it's not their fault. And she'll say, I'm just ready for Jesus to come back. This world... This world. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not advocating walking around all day saying that. But I do think there's a truth in that. If we're not anticipating Jesus coming back and what it means. And, and, and listen, God taking all things and making all things new. And resurrecting all things. Not, his, not just himself, but us. And this world and creation and the whole universe. Then man, I'm not sure... I'm just not sure, you know, like, you know, the lights are on, but nobody's home. Like, as a believer, like, I'm, I'm just not sure where the motivation comes from to live this life as a believer if that's not you and if that's not me, right? Maybe it's been shoved away somewhere. But the return of Christ is what we all ought to eagerly await. And if we don't, then we probably love this world too much. We probably love this world too much. Historical biblical Christianity holds firmly to the belief that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Hallelujah for that. Amen? So good. But that's not the end. We usually stop right there. That's not the end. No, the resurrection of Jesus is, is certainly the linchpin of Christian faith. But there's one more event that has yet to take place that we should eagerly await. 
And that's the wonderful, amazing, hope-filled return of Jesus. It's, event that, it's an event that will, when finally, once and for all, Almighty God will set things right and bring all of history to its culmination. All the things that were set out before the foundation of the world, even as Adam and Eve fell in the garden. The thing, the thing was in motion. That one day, Christ would return and perfect everything, to resurrect everything, all of creation from the dead. And it's what you and I, even today, are waiting for, and even if you aren't fully aware of it, it, it nevertheless, it's the truth. See, the second coming of Jesus is mentioned in great detail all throughout the New Testament. John 14, 1 through 3 says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, my Father. My father's house has many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me and also be where I am. First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive, hopefully, uh, we say a lot, you know, I wish we were Jesus coming back right now. Hopefully I'm still alive when, the, when, when Jesus comes back. There's no guarantee, right? I'm not banking on that. But we who are still alive are left, and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to, to those who are waiting for him. Are you waiting for him? Are you waiting? Are you eagerly anticipating? Do you live a life of readiness, right? There's a spiritual leaning and anticipation in the heart of every believer for this glorious event to happen, right? There's a yearning. The deeper you go in your relationship with God, the quicker you want it to happen. And I'm not saying the quicker you want it to happen in that, oh, I just want to leave everybody else behind, all you people that don't believe. Like, no, like, it ought to do two things. It ought to make you want Jesus to come back quicker, but it ought to motivate you to share the gospel with your lives. It does a lot of things. So the parable of the ten bridesmaids slash virgins is found in Matthew 25. So turn with me there if you're not there already. So, but in order to get the context of the parable, we need to go back one chapter. So, you're, so Matthew 25 is the, the spot that the parable begins, Matthew 25 starting um, in verse 1. But go back. One page in your Bible or one chapter to the end of Matthew 24, all right? So, and Jesus is setting the table by describing the second coming in detail, all right? This is what it says in Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. It says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. 
Verse 39, and then, and, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. For that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the hand mill and one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, therefore, when you see therefore, you need to see what it's there for. Right? Man, like, don't just start at therefore, you got to go back. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day the Lord is going to come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have been left, would not have left his house to be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. He's setting up what will follow in this next chapter, chapter 25. So to illustrate the point further, Jesus tells a story. Matthew 25, chapter, uh, verse, chapter 25, verse 1. It says, at, the, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming. He was delayed, and they became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Here he comes. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. They're not just being selfish. They're not like, Get out of here. You don't need them. Like, they didn't have enough for them and, and, and us and them too. So they said, Go buy your own oil. Instead, go to the ones who sell it and buy it for yourselves. Verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins were ready, uh, who, were, who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, those, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Wow. Therefore, see what it's there for. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So let's break this passage down just a little bit. All right, so in Jewish wedding celebrations, they were unique and different than what we know as a, a wedding and a, a wedding process today, right? Um, it was sort of a multi-step deal, right? First, there's the arrangement of the marriage between the two families. Yes, betrothals, right? In the ancient world, that was very common. Also among the Jews, there's a betrothal. Second, uh, there, there, actually, there's the arrangement between the fathers. Then there's the actual betrothal. That is a ceremony where mutual promises were exchanged or made between the bride and groom. Kind of like the wedding ceremony, but not quite, right? They weren't done at that point. Then third, the actual marriage happened. And this is where it gets interesting. This would happen one year later. It's a long time away. One year later. When the bridegroom came at an unexpected time for his bride. He wouldn't give anybody the heads up. He would just show up. Show up. And they showed up in a rather unique way. They showed up at night. 
with torches. It's kind of scary. You've been to a wedding like that? Torches? You know, when it says lamp, the word there for lamp is, is not the word we use for like an oil lamp, right? Like you would think of an oil lamp, they holding a lantern, is actually the word for torch. And so they would take these, like you see in the Indiana Jones movies, like, you know, National Treasure, the big stick with the, with the cloth wrapped around one end, dipped in oil, and, the, you know, I love that. I just, I, when I, as a kid, I just wanted to make my own torch, you know, and dip it in gasoline. Experiments gone wrong. That might be what's wrong with me now, right? I grew up in the, up in the country, so we've figured out all kinds of ways to entertain ourselves. None are appropriate here. So the word for lamp is torch. And so the bridegroom would come at an expected time. Also, we have the bridesmaids or virgins, as some of the, the versions say. And they're referred to depending on it, you know, what Bible version you're reading, what, what translation you're reading. The fact that they're known as, referred to as virgins is not significant other than the fact that most of the bridesmaids, bridesmaids chosen for, for weddings in Jesus' day would have been virgins due to, primarily to the fact that they were very young. But that word virgin has nothing to do with their virginity. Okay, It's just another word for bridesmaid. It's just no, another word for maiden. Okay, all right. So sometimes, you know, we can read, side note, we can read parables and we can read too much into them. And we can take t- every tiny little detail and it can trip us up and it can help, it, it cause us to miss the, the, the big point. Of, of the parable. I believe that's true. You know, not every little detail we're meant to, 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 you know, siphon, right? We just need to focus on the larger picture and what Jesus is trying to say. I, again, it's a story. Almost all of them, if not all of them, were made up. Now, Jesus wasn't lying. He was just telling a story as an, as an example to illustrate a, a deep spiritual lesson, okay? So don't get tripped up on the fact that it says virgins and, or bridesmaids. Is the Bible contradicting itself? No, right? Um, so here the word bridesmaid and virgin mean the same thing. Young, men, young women chosen to be part of someone's wedding party. Usually they were younger siblings of the bride a lot of times, okay? So and it was a great honor to be chosen. The Greek word here for virgins is parthenos, like the Parthenon in, in Greece, right, the famous Athenian temple that sits atop the Acropolis right now, okay? Uh, Parthenos, the Greek word Parthenos is not emphasizing the virginity part. It's simply referring to them as maidens, okay? So enough of that. The ten bridesmaids are unmarried, most likely either the bride's best friends or younger siblings. Uh, it was a Jewish custom for there to be ten of them. Ten was a, was a number that the Jews liked. Right, it meant like uh, um, it, it, some say that it referred to like a, a complete uh, party. Like it's complete if there are ten of us here. It's like a it's a full house, right? So ten was a number that they liked to to dwell on. So in the New Testament, Jesus often referred to the is is referred to as the bridegroom. You ever heard Jesus referred to as the bridegroom, right? And the church including all of us, collectively referred to as his bride, right? So now you're starting to see the larger point, a little bit of this, of this text. Ephesians 5 talks about Christ presenting his bride to himself. 
as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. So in this parable, the ten bridesmaids represent us, and the groom represents Jesus. And as the bridesmaids are eagerly awaiting the bridegroom to arrive, they go out and meet, they go out and meet him in verse 2 and 3. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take enough oil. It says the five of the, uh, five of the bridesmaids were foolish and five were wise, right? And, and the question begs, which one are we? Right, which one are we? Which category do we fall in? The foolish ones were unprepared for the bridegroom. They weren't ready. And the wise ones, verse 4 says, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. They were ready. They were prepared. Then in verse 5, it says, the groom was delayed after arriving, and the bridesmaids fell asleep. Again, don't read too much into falling asleep, kind of like the disciples did outside of Gethsemane. It's not a big deal. They just fell asleep. They're not lazy. They don't need to be looked down on. They just fell asleep. As you would, as I would, waiting for someone to arrive. If they took too long, guess what? If, we, if, if I sit down long enough, guess what? I'm falling asleep. Doesn't mean I don't want the, the person to arrive. Doesn't mean I'm being a bad host. I just fell asleep. But then in verse 6, it says at midnight, a cry rang out. and Someone sounded the alarm, so to speak. And the groom finally made his way And the bridesmaids were awakened and ran out to meet him. This was the final step in the process of marriage in the Jewish culture. But there's a problem. Five had oil and five didn't. Again, five were prepared and five were not. And look what happens at the end of the parable. Stunning. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us oil, oil. our lamps are going out. No, go buy your own oil, they said. Verse 10, but while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in to meet him, uh, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Wow. It is one of the greatest warnings in all the Bible. It is a warning. There's no doubt about it. It's a warning. We don't like warnings. We bristle when, when, when stuff gets heavy in the Bible. We don't like it, right? Our culture has taught us to, not, to, to, to go against. Something is, doesn't fit our, our liking in the Bible. We throw it out like the denomination we just left. If, we, if it doesn't fit what we like, if it doesn't fit our liking, we throw it out as if, it's not, as if it doesn't exist. Right? Lord Jesus, don't let that be us. And I'm not saying we, sh- you know, we shouldn't, not saying we're not going to have trouble in this life and, and not saying it, certainly not saying it shouldn't hurt. Life hurts. Life stinks sometimes. But, but the troubles of life ought to do one thing. It ought to not make us give up. It ought to make us turn our gaze to heaven a little bit. Right? As we say, students, keep one eye on what? Eternity. Keep one eye on eternity at all times. It's important. The return of Christ is the blessed hope of the Christian faith. 
It's the blessed hope. It's what we're all waiting for. How about you? How about you? In your, in your study, in your devotion time, or your prayer time, does it ever dawn on you that Jesus could come back at any moment? Does it, does it adjust or tweak your mindset or the way you live life at all? That Jesus could come back any moment. Right? And I'm not talking about Kirk Cameron left behind type stuff. I'm just saying, look, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Could happen while we're in church. Amen, man, that'd be awesome. Somebody's like, no, not awesome. Uh, teenagers, when I was your age, I'd be like, no, Jesus, don't come back right now. I want to get married. That was my only motivation. I wanted Jesus to hold on until I could get married. Man, I'm good now. Jesus is coming back anytime. Just saying. The return of Jesus is the hope of the church. It's the event that creation is currently yearning for. It's the great anticipation. The question is, do you personally anticipate it? We, the church, we do. Right? We sing old hymns and songs about it. You know, what a day that will be. And, you know, the king is coming. Old Gaither, man, good stuff, right? There are so many good songs about the, the return. Of, and we're going to sing one in a little while. Are you living with great excitement and anticipation for the return of Christ? If not, it's very probable you don't understand the gravity of the situation. I didn't for a long time. For a long time. Are you ready? Readiness is a spiritual discipline that most of us don't even consider. The spiritual discipline of readiness. Being ready. Being prepared. The discipline of readiness. There are two reasons that we lack readiness. Are you you ready, note takers? Here it is. Two reasons. One, ignorance. We just don't know. Haven't been taught. Ignorance. The second one is apathy. You either don't know or you what? Don't care. You either don't know that Jesus is returning or you don't care. Hopefully, you're, if you're in one of those two categories, it's, it's the former. And God will move your heart to a place where you say, come, Lord Jesus. Come when you want to. But until then, but until then, I'm going to live my life in readiness mode, right? I'm going to be ready. If I live 100 years... And at, on my deathbed, you still have not come, Lord Jesus. It's all glory to you. You will eventually come, and I will be with you in paradise when I, when I hit eternity, right? When I take my last breath. Even so, I live my life in the state of readiness. Are you in one of these two categories? Don't know, don't care. Now you know, so you either got to be in the latter category, or maybe you're in that readiness mode already. Praise God for that. Continue that. Help others get there too, right? We can't adequately share the gospel if we're not ready. If we're not anticipating Jesus coming back, we don't, it doesn't carry a lot of weight, right? Because there ought to be an urgency to it. Hey, let me, just, let me casually share the gospel. No, I'm going to share it because this could be the final breath that I take on earth. This could be the final day that I live. No one knows the day or the hour. And you're not promised tomorrow, 
Are you ready? So how do we get ready? How do we get ready? First Peter chapter 5 gives us the, the clue. I want you to turn there, or it's going to be on the screen. First Peter 5, 8 through 11 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So readiness is not something we conjure up. God needs to, has to make me ready. God has to, 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 to purify my heart and my mind and, and get rid of all the junk in my life and make me and give me a clear vision, make me sober-minded about what's coming. So the first thing is you got to watch. You need to watch. You need to watch. We like to say keep one eye on eternity. Keep watch. Not like staring upward at the sky all day, but keep watch on how you live. Not just keep watch on the, on, the, on the horizon, but keep watch on how we live. As 1 Peter 5 says, be alert, be sober-minded. So watch. That's the first step to being ready. Watch. Be alert. Secondly, pray. Does it get any simpler? Every message we preach can go back to the same thing. We, uh, 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 the prayer life, is, it will, it is, the healthy prayer life is, is where it's at. We won't rise above our prayer life. That how much we pray, how fervently we pray, that's the Christian you are. How little you pray, that's the Christian you are. Believe it or not, you can put on airs if you want to, but how little I pray is, is the condition of my heart. Amen? How much I pray is the condition of my heart. I don't care how much you love Jesus. If you're not, if, if, if you're on a fervent prayer life, you cannot be ready. You cannot live in a state of readiness. I believe the healthy prayer life does two things. It, it alleviates fears of what's coming, right? Those fears of, oh, Jesus come back. That's kind of scary, right? Thunder and clouds and a loud shout. That's kind of scary. It alleviates fears of what's coming in eternity. And also, it presses you to live a holy life, a life of surrender. So watch, pray, and the last thing is endure now, rejoice later. Endure now, rejoice later. You know, in 1 Peter 5, Paul, uh, Peter was writing to suffering Christians. And he said, look, you're going to suffer a little while. But at the right time, your joy will be made complete. And Jesus will come and things will be set right. It might not be till after you die. It might be another thousand years before Jesus comes back. We'll all be in heaven, so what's the big deal? The point is, is that in just a little while, Jesus will set things right. You know, the first century Christians believed he could come back and that he was going to come back next week. And it's been 2,000 years. I think we ought to still have that same attitude. It's not that they were ignorant. They just lived life in readiness mode, right? And we ought to do the same. Endure now. Rejoice later. We, you know, suffering will do a lot for the heart of a, a, a believer. We don't want to hear that. But suffering is how we grow. Suffering is how we grow, right? It's how we grow. Without it, we don't grow. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome this world. 
And the second coming of Jesus is the event that will bring that to fruition. In Revelation chapter 29, as we close, I'm going to ask the band to start coming up. I love this. It gives you a glimpse into what's coming. It describes what awaits for those who are prepared. And when Jesus finally returns and all creation is bowing before the throne of God, I want you to stay with me here and worshiping the glorified Jesus, the glorified bridegroom as the bride of Christ, the church, bows down. In a sense, it's the ultimate wedding celebration. And folks, you don't want to miss it. Here it is. It says, then a voice came from the throne. Praise our God, all you his servants. You who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the rushing of waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, us, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And and then he added, these are the true words of God. How can we not read this, church, and not even get a little excited about what's coming? Even those of us who have a great deal of fear and uncertainty about the end times. You watch too many movies. Man, culture gets to us. And we say, oh, man, we we ought to be scared of that. No, we shouldn't. We should be anticipating it. Come, Lord Jesus, right? If you as a believer, if, if me, if I as a believer, and a follower of Jesus, dread what's coming, I don't fully understand truly what Jesus came to do. Question is this morning, am I ready? Are you ready personally? Are you living a life in readiness mode? Do we live lives in a perpetual state of being ready? The parable of the ten bridesmaids is a warning to get yourself ready. And it's also the ultimate encouragement to the weary Christian to hold on, to hang in there. Right? Don't give up. Hang in there. To anticipate with great joy and excitement what's coming. Right? To get too comfortable in this world, like the old C.S. Lewis quote, like, I was made for another place. Right? If we're too comfortable here, we cannot be of any eternal good. If we're too comfortable here on this earth and in our culture, in our surroundings, we got to be just a little uncomfortable and ready for Jesus to return. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're very, very thankful. We're so thankful for your presence here. God, there's so much. There's so much to be excited for. There's so much to anticipate. There's so much, Lord Jesus, that we are, there's so much joy that we are missing in the fact that we, we don't acknowledge or even think about your coming. In our daily comings and goings in our lives, in our pro- the process of our lives, we don't think about the fact that your return is imminent. What an incredible thing that is. Father, forgive me when I have just 
behaved as if it's not going to happen. It's just a myth. It's just a, a weird belief that some Christians have. It's not reality. The fact of the matter is, is, is if, if we don't believe that you're coming again, that we don't believe the Bible because it's all over the place. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the way we've lived and the way we've done life without a sense of, of, of readiness and, and, and keeping one eye on eternity and anticipating your return. God, forgive us for not sharing the, the good news of the gospel with our lost loved ones and, and family because we just aren't ready for you to return. We feel like we've got all the time in the world. And whether you come in our lifetime or not, we don't have all the time in the world. Time is not on our side. So my prayer, Lord Jesus, is that you would make us ready. Make us ready. Help us to think of the resurrection, the ascension, and the return all together with great joy and excitement. Because then all of creation will finally be set right and resurrected and made new. Sin and shame and pain and sorrow will be gone, vanished forever. And in its place, wonderful, amazing, perfect worship around the throne. God, I want that. I want it for my own life. I want it for, we, we want it in here in this place, even if we're not fully aware of it. I make things right in our heart. Make us ready. In your name we pray. Amen.